Psalm 3. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again, because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, through tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw, and break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessings be on your people. Good morning, One Hope. It's good to be with you again this morning. Um, thanks, Matt, for the Bible reading. Um, and it's been a great experience for us as a church to be able to involve different people in these services. And it's good to see different faces. Um, so thank you to you, to those who have contributed to our services for today, for uh, uh, Donna and Francis and uh, Joel, thank you for leading us, and also Matt for the Bible reading this morning. Um, we are um, beginning our third week in the Psalms this week, and um, I wanted to ask again, I wanted to ask you how, the, how your Psalm reading is going, how the daily Psalms are going for you. Um, we've called it a psalm a day for 50 days. And I said it last week, and I actually would love to hear. Um, and if I look at the Facebook posts, I see a couple of comments on that, and that's great. But we would love to hear uh, some of the things that you're seeing, and maybe it's something new, maybe it's something fresh, uh, maybe it's something that just excites you or that is just a great thing to understand from the Psalms. We would love to hear and see some feedback on that. So if you get a chance, um, do that. And, and let me encourage you to hang in there and keep, uh, keep in with the Psalms each day. That really is edifying and it really does grow us. Our preaching, even though we're reading through 50 Psalms in, in 50 days, our preaching for these weeks are focused on the first seven Psalms. And... We've done Psalm 1 and 2 and they've been a really great entry for us into the Psalms and they've formed a really great foundation for our reading and, under the, for, our reading and for understanding the Psalms that follow. Um, you know, the first Psalm talked about the way of the Lord that leads us to blessing and then the second Psalm we looked at, the Lord of the way is our blessing and our refuge. But today we're going to have a look at Psalm 3 and... Um, this one is actually by David, and we can tell because it says there, it says a psalm of David. And it's really different already to Psalm 1 and 2. Um, one commentator said this, It's as if, and this should be on your screen, It's as if the compilers of the psalms set out first in Psalm 1 and 2 the underlying reality and the royal privileges of God's sons. Then from Psalm 3 onwards, the earthly realities that even privileged people have to face. David, installed on the holy hill by a mighty God, now chased off by an impudent upstart, Absalom. In theory, it's unthinkable. In practice, it becomes a common experience. But however far from the holy hill we seem to be, the words, I cry, and he answers are unbreakable. And Psalm 2 has already told us what God's answer is. A great way to look at 
uh, Psalm 1 and 2, talking about us having uh, the reality and the privileges of being uh, the children of God and of being able to seek blessing in Him. But then the Psalms begin to, the rest of the Psalms begin to unearth the realities of life and how things can happen. But Psalm 2 reminds us of what the answer always is. I think that's wonderful. So let's have a look at this psalm that, that Matt read for us. Now, most commentators aren't really sure of the tense of this psalm. When was it? Was this actually during uh, David's fleeing from Absalom or was it a, a bit of a reflection afterwards? Most would agree that in, um, in Psalm 4 and 5 straight afterwards are actually during. They're pretty clearly during. But a lot would say that Psalm 3 is more considered a psalm of uh, a psalm of, of that time when David was fleeing Absalom. We see in this psalm, we see David writes about when he was fleeing from Absalom. And the backstory of that, if you wanted to read about that story, in 2 Samuel uh, chapters 15 through to about 18, you get that whole story of what was happening around there in David's life. Absalom despises his father, has always felt like he missed out on things and, and he wasn't honoured by his father, despises his father. He thinks that he should be king. He thinks that he should be, uh, he should be um, getting to the throne. And um, he wants power. He wants prestige. He loves his friends that have power. He wants the authority that he sees his dad has with the people. And slowly over time, by garnering uh, friendships and, and, and perhaps, you know, um, um, bribing people, slowly he gathers a band of followers and undermines David's kingship over time. You know the details around that. He, he, he gathers allegiances with people. He bribes people. He lies about David and his ways. And he builds a bit of a following against David. And that following actually grows to the point of having a critical mass of people. A critical mass of people, but also some commanders, some, some mighty men, and even some priests, if you read the story. And he gets the people to turn from David and declare him as king. He actually gets the people to say, Absalom is the king. David is betrayed by his own son. And actually, this is an, the end of a series of events that... David should have known about that God had, had explained that these sorts of things would happen in David's life as a result of his sin with Bathsheba, Uriah, murder, etc. Now, and Absalom himself, in order to garner that favour, might have reminded people of David's faults. He might have reminded people of David's sin. It was well known what David had done. He might have reminded people that, that his, king, his father, David, had murdered Uriah. Um, that there'd been deceit, deceit, that there'd been adultery. And he may have actually convinced the people that through those things, David had lost God's favour. Um, and without God's favour, he, he may have convinced the people that would be risky because we're still fighting other kings. And if, if God's favour doesn't rest with my father David, but actually rests with me, then you'd be better sticking to me because it would be risky in battle if God's favour has gone off. And you can see how he slowly turned the minds of the people because God may not be with them then. So David, in this, seeing the writing on the wall and hearing that it happens, he gets scared. And he actually, some of the translation says he gets filled with dread. And he runs. 
He, he takes a few loyal, he has a few loyal men left and he takes a few men and he runs into the hills. And it looks like David's lost the kingship, doesn't it? When we read that story in 2 Samuel. Now we know that David doesn't lose the kingship. But then for us it's always easy to look back on the story, isn't it? You know, I think in this psalm there are three things, three realities for us to see here. Maybe three things that David wants the reader to know through his retelling of this. And three things is a good and great reformed sermon, right? So those three things are dread, declaration and deliverance. Um, that alliteration was for, for you, Joel Poppenbeck. He loves alliteration and um, I thought you would like that. But we're going to see that it's a progression. We're going to see that, that dread, real dread, is quieted or assuaged, if you like, by declaration. And that declaration reveals or unearths deliverance. And so we want to look at dread, declaration and deliverance. Let's start by looking at dread. And dread, you might think, wow, that's a heavy word, maybe. And some translations might use the word fear. But dread's a, a heavy word. Um, fear would work as well. I considered despair, but despair is really not what it is. Despair isn't strong enough and you, you, don't, you, you run because of fear and dread. And this is what, um, and if we read the first couple of verses, we can see this is what David was experiencing. So firstly, and, and this is really important to know, David's fear and anxiety are real. They're not imagined. They're not kind of, oh, woe is me, you know, my enemies are out there and I don't know where they are. This was real. This was really happening. It's not imagined. It's not perception. And he does really feel this dread, this fear intensely. And mixed up in all that, there must be for David, can you imagine, there must be this real sense of betrayal and hurt. This is his son. Let's have a look at his words. Let's have a look at verse 1 and 2. And we'll have them on the screen for you. He begins, he says, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. There's a lot of many's there, isn't there? And there's a real sense in those words. There's this deep, oh no, I'm in trouble. I'm overwhelmed. Um, it, it's, it's, it's about foes. It's about enemies. It's about opposition. And, and he's probably thinking, even my son is leading what seems to be a successful rebellion. What on the surface looks like a successful rebellion against me. And many are saying of me, he's finished. God will not deliver him. In the ESV it says, many are saying there is no salvation for him. And so David is also feeling this intense sense of derision from people. He's feeling like people are, 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 are against him and that he's got so much opposition. And can you imagine feeling overwhelmed by that? How that fear, having, having been a king, how that, that might translate to fear. God will not deliver him. You know, the people saw what happened in Absalom and all. And, and, and the people might have thought, he, he actually deserves this. You remember we talked about that, that, that they knew that, that David's history of sin. And, and the people probably think he deserves this. After all, we remember Bathsheba, etc. 
They looked at David's past sins, perhaps, and felt that even though God was able to help David, he was probably unwilling to. And David was feeling this derision and this this rejection of people and the threat, uh, the physical threat of his kingship being overtaken. You know, and if you read the story in, in, in 2 Samuel about 16, if you read the story, even as he's fleeing, there's this guy called Shimei or Shimei who kind of runs alongside David and his men, or it talks about a hill next to him, and he, and he curses David and he jeers David and, and he, he ridicules David and he, he even chucks stones at David and says, oh, you know, you're a loser and all this kind of stuff. And, and the few loyal men that with David say to David, David, you know, we can get him. Let's, let's, let's get him. And this goes on for a couple of days, it seems like. Let's get him. Let's attack him. And David himself even says, no. Let him be. I probably deserve it. So David's in this place where he really thinks that it's all over. And he's fearful. And this was probably the most painful thing for David. The dread that God might be against him. That there is no help, no salvation, no deliverance. That was real dread for David. And Charles Charles Spurgeon says this. He says... It is the most bitter of all afflictions to be led to fear that there is no help for us in God. You know, this sense that David thought, I've lost the kingship, but I've even lost God's favour. And he began to think, maybe it's true. God can save me. I have no doubt that he's able, but maybe he's not willing. Maybe what they're saying is true. And in him rose that sense of fear and dread. And, you know, as I said before, David's fear wasn't imagined. It was real. There was a rebellion. His son was leading it. The people were jeering and, and scorning him. And there was also probably the reality of physical violence. You know, if, you, if your throne is overtaken, you don't hang around. Because the king who's no longer a king that hangs around usually gets beheaded or something. So there was probably a real threat of what would the people do if I don't run, if I don't get out of here, if I stay around. And then consider practically some of the losses that David would have been feeling. You know, the power that he had as a king, the riches that came to him being the king, the, the standing and the authority and the position that he had, the, the sense of majesty and honour that he had received as king, the trappings of king life, of all the things that come with being a king. So those were real. He's a human too, remember. And now also perhaps the loss of God's presence, the loss of God's help. Can this happen to God's chosen? Can this happen to God's anointed? So that just helps us understand that in those first few verses, David's words were very real. There was a real sense of fear and dread. There was a lot happening on a human level, but even in in David's mind and, and in a spiritual level. We can have that too, can't we? We can experience fear. Um, I don't know about you, whether you have, or uh, feeling anxiety. Anxiety is real, and, and, and maybe you've experienced that. And it can be at many levels in our lives, can't it? it even now, especially, I'm talking to people and I'm, I'm, I'm hearing it more, that fear and anxiety is part of what's going on now in, in our life. Maybe you've also had times of dread. Maybe you can also remember a time when you really dreaded something. 
We can be overwhelmed by our situations. We can be overwhelmed by our struggles and our conflicts and our doubts and so many more things. Have you ever, like David, prayed and told God that your fears are many and great? Have you ever prayed like this and said, oh, you know, my foes are all around me and, and, and I don't think, and people say I'm not going to make it, and, and the voices inside my head say I'm not going to make it. Have you ever prayed and told God that your fears are many and great? Maybe there aren't many that are saying to you, God won't save you. Maybe there aren't people outside of you saying that, but maybe there's your own voice telling you, you know what, you've, you've, you've done, you know, you've screwed up too much. There's too many things wrong. And God is able to save you, but look, he's not because of who you are. Maybe it's the voice on the inside. And for some of us, this may not be a real common experience. You may not suffer fear or anxiety or dread very much. But we've all had times where we've felt those feelings, I'm sure. And just like David, they can be real in our lives. It's really important to acknowledge that anxiety and dread and fear are real for us too. And that's what we see in this psalm, isn't it? David doesn't mess around with it. He doesn't hide that fact and over-spiritualize it. It's really important for him to tell us, this is real. I'm really feeling this. It's just as important for us to do that. And for some of us, perhaps more than others. You know, those first two psalms and their, their message of blessing and refuge and all of those things, those lovely messages, can at times seem long ago and faint, can't they? The, the, the memories and, the, and, the, good, and, the, and the, the good knowledge of those things. So when these times come, when anxiety or fear comes in your life or in my life, what do I do? What do you do? More to the point, what can we do? And even more to the point, what does God do? What has David discovered as God's answer to his dread? And this is what he goes on to tell us. And this is why I think David knows that he's helping the listener and the reader in this sort of thing. So he goes on to tell us what he does. And that's our second point. It's a declaration, isn't it? Let's have a look at verse 3. And four. You know, in verse one and two, he's just sort of said, Look, it's really bad. My foes are all around me. Many are saying, God will not deliver me. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. Did you read that? Did you see that? A declaration of truth. Right in the midst of those feelings, perhaps it's right in the middle of those feelings and experiencing that, but a declaration of truth. And it begins with, but this is all true. I, it's, 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 I'm scared and, and I'm full of dread and, and I really don't know where this is going to go. But he recalls and he calls to mind, you, God, are a shield around me. Not a shield in front of me. It's not some little shield that I hold up to, to knock off the occasional arrows. Or a shield that I just hold there as I stand still or I retreat so things don't, don't get me. But you, God, are a shield around me as I walk through this situation, as I walk through this battle in my life, as I walk through the place that you have me. You're a shield around me. You know, and you might know some of those, you know, movies like Braveheart and things like that. You might see, have seen the different shields and... 
and you've got a small shield that you hold in front of you, but you've got these big shields that they have right around them that they, that they use to, to advance, you know, and, and you need a big shield around you and, and covering you, well, I don't know, for, you know, a one-ton rock that someone throws or hot oil over the wall of the, the building, but they have these shields that go around them so that nothing can sneak in behind as well. And then that gives them confidence together to move forward and to advance on the enemy. Only those shields were for forward movement. And David says, you are a shield around me because I'm, I'm in this place. I can't retreat. I can't go back. I'm, I'm where you're taking me, but you are a shield around me. You know, it wouldn't have been... Um, it would have been significant for David to use that language because back in Genesis 15 or 14 or 15 where Abraham is also a little bit unsure about what God's calling him to be. God says, I will be your shield. I will be a shield around you. And David would have known that language and that language would have been significant for him. I can only move forward through this God because you are a shield around me. When we uh, despair or when we get fearful or, or anxious, when life becomes a little less defined like it is at the moment, it, you know what we were doing this time a year ago is so totally different than now. And, and we, you know, the, the, in talking with people now, the question is, well, what's going to happen? What's it going to look like? What, what, you know, and, and what is life going to look like after this? Or how long before things get back to normal when life becomes less defined or less than the way we want or expect it to be maybe like now do we look to god who is a, a shield around us do we move forward in confidence the words of psalm 139 jumped in my mind when i was preparing that and and psalm 139 verse 5 says this doesn't it you hem me in behind and before you lay your hand on me. And that whole sense of being enclosed by God and being kept by God. Do we know that in our fear? Remember, David's dread was real and, and it had substance, as do our fears and as do our anxieties at times. But it's a declaration of truth. I feel this, but you are my shield. But he goes on, doesn't he? He doesn't just talk about the shield. He says, you, but you, Lord, are a shield around me. You are my glory and the lifter of my head. It's as if he's saying, my fear was because I felt like I lost what I had. All of those things that we talked about. My glory, where I found my glory was in my position, in my power, in my achievements, in, in my authority, in, in my riches. The esteem that I had from people. I was finding my glory, my, my significance in those things. But, but, but you are my glory, Lord. You are the one that lifts my head. You know, and what, what is that sort of when you think of that picture of a head being lifted up of, a, of someone who's not very proud, who's, who's ashamed and their head is down or who is shy and their head is down. But when they lift their head, that's a sign of confidence. God, you are the one that lifts my head. I was finding my pride in myself. But it's in you, Lord. 
you lift my head. And as I call out to you, I call out to the Lord. As I call out to you, you answer me from your holy hill. That holy hill where deliverance comes from, where salvation comes from, where the tabernacle is now, where, where God resides and, and the king had, had placed the tabernacle up there and that's where the authority of God was. You answer me from your holy hill because you're still there. You're still in charge where deliverance and salvation come from. It's as if David's saying, I had looked for my significance, my deliverance in finite things. In the things that I had and I had created. Things that I could control. Things that I, I thought I needed. My fear and dread came from the thought or reality of losing those things. And do and you know what that's like when, when, you, when you, something that you're holding on to is, is really important to you and, and it kind of gives you a sense of who you are or, um, or you, you kind of depend on it. If, it's, if there's a threat that it's going to be removed, that's when fear and anxiety come in. My fear and dread come from the thought or reality of losing those things. There is so much, in preparing this, I'm thinking there's so much here that it's hard for us to do justice to it. But my question to myself and to us is, where do we find our glory? What lifts our heads? We build an identity, a life, and we get our significance maybe from being proud of where we've come, what we have, and that could be physical things, it could be health, it could be a lifestyle, it could be wealth uh, or progress, or, or look at our world, we, get, we build a sense of pride on our knowledge and our can-do, what we can do and what we can achieve. So when we depend on success and health and safety and security and influence and it gets threatened, or in many cases sometimes even taken from us, we fear, we get anxious, we respond, don't we? Something builds in us. Could it be that we have actually deposited our glory or seen our significance in these things? In these earthly things, could it be? Could it be that these things matter most? That they are our glory? You know, Tim Keller, in a message, in a sermon, he talks about idols in our lives. When, when good things become ultimate things. And how you can tell. You know, they become our glory. They, they give us glory. <clears throat> And when they're threatened or taken, we react in fear. Uh, we get anxious. You know, and that can only be true when, when your significance is in something more ultimate than God. You're getting your glory other than from God. But just like David... You know, and, and he recognises that. Just like David, when we recognise that, when God shows us that, if we will take a moment to have a look what's happening in our lives and, and when we allow God to show us that, we can say, I may have lost what I was holding on to for significance. I might have lost what I was holding on to for confidence and meaning. How much I enjoyed my life and my health and my lifestyle and the things that I could do and the, the, the resources I had, what I was proud of. But you are my glory, Lord. 
when we see that we've, we've made something else ultimate, when we've deposited our glory in something else, when God shows us that. And we can see that as it's removed, that anxiety and fear becomes a part of our life. We can say, but you are my glory, Lord. You're the one who lifts my head. You're the one who gives me reason to be proud. It's you, God. Our glory is so much more, so much safer and so much more secure in him than being deposited in our fragile humanness. And it sounds easy when I say it like that, doesn't it? You know, I'm preaching to myself and I'm thinking, why is it so hard in my life sometimes? But our glory, our significance is so much stronger and, and secure in God than when we place it in our fragile, fragile humanness, isn't it? David has discovered, or perhaps he's rediscovered, that very thing. And when he realises it, he cries out to the Lord. He says, I cried out to the Lord. And, and guess what? God answered. It says, it says, I call out to the Lord. It doesn't, say, it doesn't stop there. I call out to the Lord and he answers me. And guess what he answers? He is there. And he's not unwilling to help me. Despite my failings and my sin and despite what people are saying that, that, that maybe you've given up on me, God, I cried out to you and you are there. You answered me from your place of authority and you heard me. You are there. You're, you are willing to help me. Deliverance and salvation come from that place, don't they? We often look for it in ourselves. I do. We often look for deliverance and salvation from something that I can do, that I can, I can do well. And, and I cry out to myself and I, I try to raise up and I try that rallying or I try to rally people around me. But David helps us to see that deliverance and salvation comes from that place, from God, from that holy hill in Zion. How comforting and how encouraging is that? Because that is unfailing. I am failing, but God is unfailing. We can call out to God and he hears us. He answers us. <clears throat> you know, does it always change the situation? No, it doesn't. You know, I think we, we see that it doesn't always change the situation immediately. And even if we go back into Samuel, we see that David has a ways to go. He's not out of this by any stretch of the imagination. He still has battles to fight. He's still in the wilderness with a few good men. He's still got people jeering at him and throwing rocks at him. And ultimately, we read, he still has to deal with the physical loss of his son. He actually weeps and mourns when his son Absalom is killed in battle. So David still has things to experience. So does God, he cries out to God, but does God change everything straight away? No, he doesn't. You and I are invited in our fear and struggle, even if that struggle sometimes is with God himself, to call out to God. And despite our failings and despite feeling like we're not worthy and we might have missed the mark in the past or even right now, God hears us and he answers. And David wants us to know that. That's a declaration, isn't it? That's what we do. We recognize that where we are. David recognized where we are. We recognize where we are, that we are in fear, that we're in dread and that things are not right. But we declare that, God, you are a shield around me. My glory is in you. It isn't in myself. I've been finding it in myself, but it's in you. And so I call out to you and you answer me. 
That's a declaration. And as David now points out to us so well, what does that lead to? Deliverance. Let's have a look at verses 5 to 8. He's just said, I call out to the Lord and he answers me. And he says in verse 5, I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. When you read that, and when you think about that, read that a couple of times, it's so practical, so incredibly practical. David's deliverance looks like this, let me tell you. He sleeps well. Rest. His confidence returns. He's kept in his sleep. He gets to wake up in the morning with hope for another day. He no longer fears. He says that, doesn't he? He no longer fears. Even though the reason for his fear, the enemies and the opposition are still there, that hasn't gone away, he no longer fears. God fought with him and battled for him. God went before him and goes before him to deal with the wicked. And he knows blessing again. He recognises it for himself and on your people, for all people. May your blessing be on your people. Really practical, isn't it? Isn't it? So he, he struggles with fear. He declares who God is. And in that comes that deliverance. And that deliverance is really practical, isn't it? Oh, I can sleep. You know, fear can stop you from sleeping, can't it? Dread can stop you from sleeping. I, I can sleep and I can wake up confident with energy the next day and have hope because I don't need to fear anymore, even though those tens of thousands are still there. What a great and loving God who knows the perfect ingredients to quiet a fearful man or a fearful woman or an anxious person. The very things we would need. How very, very practical is our God. Rest. Return of the confidence and the hope. Fear no longer reigning. God fighting for us. And helping us to see his blessing. Isn't that what we all want? Isn't When we're anxious, when we're fearful, isn't that... Aren't they the very things that are missing when we're anxious or fearful. We can't rest, we can't sleep, we can't, we've lost confidence, we've lost hope. You know, reading this, I'm not sure I could define deliverance any better than that. You know, just to be a bit personal here, I struggle and have done with anxiety and worry and fear and it occasionally assails me and comes back to, to greater or lesser degrees. And amongst other things, when I read this, amongst other things, what is taken from me in those times is rest, sleep, hope, the ability to see positive things, the ability to fight against those fears that keep on trying to creep back in those enemies, and the ability to see and enjoy blessing. The enemy uses fear and anxiety to shroud me from those things. And so for me, this is in, incredibly practical and incredibly encouraging. And I think it's true for all of us. How incredibly loving, practical and attentive is God to deal with exactly those things that our fear takes away from us. He doesn't condemn me or us because we fear. 
He doesn't condemn you because I fall into fear or I get anxious because he knows that we're frail. The Bible says that, doesn't he? He knows that we're frail. But he answers our call. Maybe you can identify with this. Maybe often you feel this, or maybe a lot, or maybe only sometimes. It could be that you have a proclivity to, to this sort of to anxiety and fear, and um, as that can be for me at times. Or it could just be a situational thing that, or an issue based, you, you have an occasion where you're anxious about something happening in your business or in your work or in your job or, or in a relationship or about the future. And, and maybe it's only been a few times when you felt that sort of thing. And you remember those times when you can't sleep and, and you're tired all the time and the battles just seem to get bigger and the issues don't go away. In this psalm, we learn that we can call out to God. And he answers. Rest is in him and from him. Hope is in him and from him. He has beaten our foes. And we're going to celebrate Lord's Supper just shortly. And that's what we're going to declare. That he beat the greatest foe in our life. The power of sin and death itself. He's beaten our foes. He delivers us and he saves us. May his blessing rest on his people. Oh my, what a deliverance. Isn't that a, great, isn't that a great picture that David gives us there? But as I pointed out, there's even a greater deliverance. There's, you know, I'm just overwhelmed sometimes when I recognise that God can deliver me from the anxiety, the, the anxious moments, the fears, the situations that I'm in, and, and perhaps that you also experience. But there is even a greater deliverance we can see. A greater salvation that in David's day was yet to come. He hadn't seen this yet. But we have. It's come for us. David says in verse 8, doesn't he? He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. In the, in the ESV version, it says, salvation belongs to the Lord. From the Lord comes deliverance. And we've seen it. We know it. We know that our salvation, our deliverance came from the Lord. In the form of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. And this is a great foundation of our understanding of salvation, isn't it? We know that it wasn't anything we did. that we've, We cried out to God that God had to move to save us. There's nothing that we did. That it's from God, from Him and by Him, not from ourselves. And that's why it's important for us to understand that when we misplace our glory, or we, we find our glory in ourselves, our significance in ourselves, we end up trying to be our own saviour. And when we see it failing, we end up in fear. You know, this verse 8 talks about how um, from the Lord comes deliverance, that um, salvation comes from our God. Um, Spurgeon again, and, and Spurgeon's a great source of, of reading about the Psalms, <clears throat> says this, and it's a little bit of a long quote, and I've Simplified the language a bit, but try to follow along with me because this is really good. He says, This verse contains the sum and the substance of Calvinistic doctrine. Read scripture through, and if you read it with a candid mind, you must be convinced that the doctrine of salvation by grace alone is the great doctrine of the Word of God. Salvation belongs to our Lord. Our opponents may say salvation belongs to the free will of man, if not to man's merit, at least to man's will. But we hold and teach that salvation from first to last, in every iota of it, 
belongs to the Most High God. It's God that chooses His people. He calls them by His grace. He quickens them by His Spirit. And He keeps them by His power. It is not of man. Not of Him that He wills it. Nor of Him that He can work for it. But of a God that shows mercy. How much confidence does that build in you, knowing that I don't need to find it in myself. In fact, I can't find it in myself. But from the God that I call out to comes salvation, comes deliverance. Deliverance from the big picture of sin and death, but also deliverance and salvation from the things that um, assail against us, that fight against us in this life. That he's the God of all of that. Though we have times of fear, times of anxiety or dread, our declaration of God's goodness will lead us to deliverance. David helps us to see that. You know, we're going to read on that David gets into many situations where, you know, you think, David, have you forgotten that, that you wrote down? You know, do you forget that you just declared all this stuff about God? And here you are again. Um, We'll see that in other Psalms. In so many ways, that's encouraging because that's humanness. But we can always cry out to God. He will lead us to deliverance. Salvation will and has come because God is good. We need only to call out to him, recognise that that he is our glory, that he will lift our heads. We need to hold on to the wonder of the cross and all that Jesus did. When I was doing this, uh, working through this, I was reminded of a <clears throat> when I was reading that that Spurgeon quote and this sense that there's nothing that I can do that that God has reached in and done everything. I was reminded of a, a line in in a, an old song. Uh, a guy called Augustus Toplady wrote this song, and it's a, a song that many of you know, a hymn that many of you know, called "Rock of Ages." And there's one line that says, "Nothing in my hands I bring, simply." To the cross I cling. And really that's it in a nutshell, isn't it? I'm fearful and I found my glory in myself, but I've found it wanting, incredibly wanting. So I cry out to you, God, and I cling to the cross. David hadn't seen the cross yet. We've seen the cross and we get to reach out and cling to the cross and claim that salvation, claim that deliverance. Find our glory in Him.